0: Another great Sabbath, I uh, told Olivia, uh, when she came in earlier, I said, you know, I'm really tired, Olivia. I hope I don't fall asleep during the sermon. So, yeah. Charles is up here, he'll see me, he'll spitball me or whatever. That's <laughs> no uh, That's not a problem, see, I can ask my kids. i got a, my oldest daughter sitting back here. She'll tell you, I can easily stand up in front of them and talk. And before you know it, I'm asleep. So you have to bear with me. <laughs> I've known Sheila and George for uh, quite a long time, and for me to see Sheila in the condition she's in, it does it does hurt. It does pull you down and makes you really want to seek God's help and guidance in everything that you do. So you know we have a, a great opportunity. Sometimes we neglect it, but God's given these ju- these things for purposes. I know I wrote down in one of the notes I've got here is ask myself, and I ask you too. Uh, have you ever asked yourself? I asked God, yeah, why yourself? Why me? Why am I here? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why was I called? You know, I've got friends that uh, when I worked at NASA. Uh, work friends, not loving family friends, but work friends that were fairly well educated and made a lot of money and I was just a laborer, and I caught all the bad side, and so I have to ask myself sometimes why me why why didn't I have the better job and I think of the many times of, as a beekeeper, you know I gave up electronics, I know my wife probably says, "Why me?" He had a good job in electronics, and now he's a beekeeper. <laughs> And we struggled for food, we struggled for uh, funds coming in. I'm sure she'd probably asked more, more than once, Why me, God? Why, why have I done that? And, and when, I, when I was out there working bees, and you know, and you've got a whole load of truckload of bees, and it's kind of early in the morning, you know, you've got to get them off while it's daylight, and you bury the truck, and the bees get hot. And the harder they get, the meaner they get. And you get out there and say, why is it happening to me anyway? What did I do wrong that this is a a problem that's hitting me? And then last night I looked up this little statement, anything that can go wrong, will go wrong. (laughs) That's what's called Murphy's Law. So you have to ask yourself, why me? Maybe it's Murphy's fault. (laughs) Whoever Murphy is, I tried to find that out and found out it wasn't Murphy in the beginning. It was Sod, whoever that is, come up with one of these uh, statements. Anything will go wrong, it will go wrong. And if you think it won't go wrong, it's going to go wrong. If you got it all planned out, it'll still have problems and difficulties with it. But occasionally... We find that we ask God, why me, God? Why am I having to go through these things? So we look to God and kind of put the uh, problem on God's shoulders. You know, I'm a good person. I do all the right things, and yet I find I'm having difficulties. Notice Genesis 3, verse 8. Genesis 3. We know in Genesis 1... God shows He created the heavens and the earth. We know that He made the sun and the moon and the stars, and He created all these things. And then we listen to science today and says it all happened in a big bang. Well, uh, I think in Job tells us that, that the angels sat out there and they witnessed this big bang opening. They saw everything unfold in front of them. And so God took the time out, and he made a man. And here in Genesis 3, verse 8, we find God had already talked to Adam. He'd already schooled him. He'd already been communicating with him. They were getting to become friends. We see, and Adam and Eve heard the voice of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves. Now, you know, that's kind of strange. Adam was learning to be a friend of God. But now he hears God and he's hiding himself. And I think a lot of times as people, as human beings in this society, especially in this time when we're almost at the time it was when the days of Noah, so we try to hide ourselves from God too. We try to find places to get away from God. So they hid themselves and from the presence of God among the trees. We make that mistake, don't we? We try to cover up the things that we do wrong. That's why Adam was hiding himself. He knew he made a mistake. we well, he's a human, you know. But he didn't want to face the consequences. So in verse 9 it says, The Lord called Adam and said unto Adam, uh, Where are you? Have we ever thought that God's asking us, Where are you now? You know, I've given you everything. I've brought you to a place that I know you can learn. I'm giving you people that can teach you. Where are you? Why aren't you here? What are you hiding from? And Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid. Of course, you know, if we go back and look at Exodus, we find at the base of the mountain, when Israel heard the Ten Commandments delivered to them, it was pretty powerful. They heard the voice of God, and they trembled in their boots, or sandals, or whatever. And they told Moses, don't let God talk to us anymore. Well, maybe that's what Adam was thinking right here. Uh, uh, I don't need to talk to God right now. So God walked in the garden and said, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. What do you mean? You know, as a parent, when you, you give birth to a child and you have to bathe the child, you have to clean the child up, what would you think of as your month, two months, Two-year, three-year-old child come up to you and say, "I gotta hide from you because I'm naked. I ain't got no clothes on." And you're saying, "I've seen you before. You know you're no different than you were. Maybe just a little bigger, but you're the same as you was all the time." So they said, "I hid myself because I was naked. I was afraid of you." And the Eternal said, "Who told you you were naked?" But where'd you come up with this story? You not have to think about that. Where'd you come up with the idea that you're naked? I know who you are. You cannot hide from me, because we know there are scriptures that tell us if we're in the bottom of that trench out here in the Pacific, seven to eight miles down, I know you are there. If you take and get in a rocket and they shoot you to Mars or Jupiter or someplace, I know where you are. You can't hide. I know who you are. So God asked the pertinent question, Have you eaten from the tree where I commanded you that you should not eat? You know, that was a command from God, not to go and eat from that tree. Did you do that? How about us? Are there things that we know that God has taught us, after he brought us into the church he raised us as children, raising us as children, that we start doing things that we know we shouldn't do. So then we hide from God because we broke a command. Notice the response by Adam. Uh, he's He's the head. He's the one that God put there in charge. He said, the woman who you gave me to be with me. She gave me the tree and I did eat it. What did he do right there? He said, it ain't my fault. It's not my fault. It's your fault, God. Because if you hadn't given me the woman, I would never have sinned. Yeah, right, you know. (laughs) He blamed not only his wife, but he blamed God. He said, it's your fault, God that I ate of that tree because my wife enticed me. She gave it to me, and Mick uh, braved me. I watched her eat, and she didn't die, so I guess it's okay. Maybe you're not telling me the truth. Do we hear that at times? Do we hear God's Word, and I don't care whether it's from Psalms or Isaiah or Revelation or Matthew, Mark, Luke, John... I don't care if it's from Genesis. It's all God's Word. We know the Psalm says it's been purified seven times. So, are we hearing the words and then making a mistake and then hiding from God and then turning around and saying, Well, God, you know, if you hadn't have put me in this bee truck and let me run into this muck bottom, then I wouldn't have been stuck there. So, why did you do that? Now, I find myself questioning why these things happen. You know, being an auto mechanic, which I don't like, but I do. You know, having to do things I don't care for. But there is a lesson to be learned in everything that we do. goes on in verse 13, And the Lord said unto the woman, What is this that you have done? Adam had told her. She knew, she heard from God, all these things. And notice the woman's response. I didn't do it. It's not my fault, God. The serpent beguiled me and and I did it. It's the serpent's fault. (laughs) The serpent did it, not me. I'm just a a weak human being here. And uh, I'm following what you want me to do. God told Adam and Adam could think back that yes, God gave it. So when he said, the woman you gave me, back in verse 18 we read where the God said it's not good that man should be alone. So is it God's fault that he had the woman and she made the mistake? No. Whose fault was it? It was Adam's. He was weak and he didn't want to admit it. Just didn't want to admit that he had Falling short of a mark. Now, each one of us heard a lot of things over our lifetime in the church. And occasionally, we try to justify a mistake. And who do you blame? Your wife? Your husband? Your children? Your friends? Your neighbors? Your job? Your boss? You know? <laughs> I just. Fell short. Sure, I was weak. I'm not the guilty party here. I'm, you, you put me in this place, God. Exodus 32. You know, in Exodus 32, or, or ex, all of Exodus leading up to 32, God reached down. He saw. Well, we have to understand that he also put Israel in a position for a purpose, a learning experience. And they were in captivity for 400 years. And God came down and said, it's time to bring them out, time to teach them another lesson. So we see where they went through all the plagues, or went through the first four plagues, and then witnessed the rest of the plagues, witnessed the death of the firstborn. Thousands of people died at that time. Thousands of people and animals. They were there. They watched The army of of Egypt totally destroyed. And they had a joyous time, didn't they? The last day of Unleavened Bread, they were joyous. They sang the song of Moses and Miriam. They were happy because they were now freed from Egypt. And so we come to the mountain. They hear God speak. They were frightened. They didn't want to hear God speak. God told Moses, come on up to the top of the mountain. I'm going to give you some instructions. He was gone, what, a week, a month? He was gone actually 40 days, but a week or a month down the line, the people got agitated or restless or whatever, and they sinned. So we see here in Exodus 32, verse 21, Moses came down to the mountain, holding the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God. Now, he'd been gone 40 days, and he hears this noise down there and sees that they're having orgies. This is the people that had eyewitnessed thousands of people dying. This has only been a little over 50 days later, maybe 60 days you No. Know, 50, 90 days later, 90 days later, time Moses come down from the mountain. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people unto you, that you have brought so great a sin upon them? Moses said, You were responsible, Aaron. You were supposed to teach them the right way. What did they do to you? So Moses putting a responsibility not only on Aaron, but on the people. Then Aaron said, Let not your anger, my Lord, be waxed hot. Oh, don't, don't jump on me so bad, Aaron, I mean, Moses. Take it easy, you know. You ever see somebody get really angry and unload on you? Well, it's not joyous, is it? So more, here, Moses was pretty upset, and I don't blame him. Because he remembered what they went through. You know, Aaron says to Moses, you know the people that they are set on mischief. You know, it's not really my problem, it's the problem of these people that God brought out here. So it's not my problem, it's yours, and it's God's problem. It's not my problem. It's easy for us to see that happening in our local congregations. We have seen it happen in the church. When Worldwide was together and going strong and all of a sudden, we know it was Jodakotsch's problem and it was the minister's fault that all these problems occurred and the church got split up because they just didn't do their job. Or did they? Or maybe we're just not willing to say, you know, maybe I'm responsible too. But like Adam, we want to hide. We want to say, hey, wait a minute. It's not my problem. Uh, it's your problem, God. Just like Aaron was pointing out, and Israel kept pointing out all the time, if you'd have just left us in Egypt we'd had our own homes and our leeks and our onions, and they didn't want to think that they were slaves. They had to do what somebody else told them to do. Now, we forget about the bad stuff that is occurring only to say we could have had a better life back then. What about it with us when we come out of this world like Revelation eighteen four and Many other places in the scripture says come out from egypt don 't be a part of them or their way of life but it 's easy to slip back in that way of life and say, "Well, you know god it 's just the fact that you 've given us the internet and, and you've given us television and you have given us all these cars and planes we can just do about anything it 's not our problem if you wouldn 't have made it available to us. so we find too often. It's easy to look out there and say, it ain't my problem is God's problem. Just like Aaron, he passed the buck. He passed the buck not from his leadership, his neglect, his lack of love for God. He passed it on to the people. And throughout all of Israel's life, they always tried to blame Moses and God for what happened to them. And whether it was the kings or the people, the priests or the lay people, we always look out there and say, Hey, my problem! Yeah, I did it, but, you know, it had things been better, if I'd have had a better house, I had a better job, I had a... Uh, I had a better wife, had a better husband, I I had better kids. You know, what happens when your kids go wrong? Whose fault is that? (laughs) It's the parent's problem. It's a parental problem when your kids are going in the wrong direction because you didn't take the time to teach them the right standards of life. So we can go out there and say, it's my kid's fault. And have you given me better kids? Wait a minute. If God had given them better, He gave them the best. He gave you the best. It's just how you treated it. Let's look at another example of someone who, and you know these stories, someone who had a responsibility. He was a leader of the whole nation of Israel. Given a responsibility. Expected from God to do what he told him to do. But he made some mistakes, and his response are in the wrong direction. First Samuel 15. First Samuel 15. This is about King Saul. Remember, he was... Israel complained about... Samuel leadership. And what did Christ say to him? It's not you, Samuel, that they hate. They hate me. Again, it's they're blaming me for the situation they're in. They want a king. They don't want me to rule over them. So I'll give you a king. And he brought Saul. Well over, head and shoulders above everybody else. Tall man, big guy. Apparently good looking. Had a lot going for him. But he didn't follow the commands. So here in 1 Samuel 15, verse 20, And Saul said unto Samuel, Yes, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and have gone the way which... The Lord has sent me and have brought Agag King of Amalek and have utterly destroyed all the Amalekites. Wait a minute. He brought Agag the king back. How could he have utterly destroyed all the Amalekites if he had Agag there? He's trying to justify his mistakes. And he goes on, and then he goes out and claims to blame. He says, You know, see, it's not my fault anyway. But the people took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen and the cheap things which uh, should have, he said, should have been destroyed. He knew what was supposed to be done. He was king. He was the man in charge. It's like they say, he's where the buck stopped. The buck stopped with him. So he said, the people took all these things. Because they wanted to sacrifice unto God. That's why they kept it. So he's justifying his actions. Notice what Samuel had to say. says it to you and to me also, you know. This is to us. Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Eternal? That's the bottom line. He expects us to obey him from the heart, from the mind. Our whole whole being is to obey and love our Creator. And he doesn't need burnt offerings. Behold, Samuel said, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Obedience is the bottom line. Had Adam obeyed God, he wouldn't have had to suffer the consequences. Had Israel obeyed God, they wouldn't have had to go through 40 years of tribulation. And if the church today would only obey God, they're not going to have to go through the tribulation. Oh, so it's only three and a half years. Let me tell you, if we're not obeying the voice of God, as we have read in the scriptures, and they pointed out, the scriptures have pointed out that uh, about 90% of the church will go into tribulation. Only a small remnant will not. And why? Because God hates them? No. Because God, because God loves them. Because God wants them to be part of his family. And if we're not willing to obey right now, then we're going to have to learn it the hard way. But we will obey, and we still can be part of the family of God and marry Christ, but we might have to have a little pressure put on us, more than what we're willing to think about. So we only see what's right here in front of us most of the time. We don't look far enough down the line to grasp the problem that's going to happen. He goes on in verse 23, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Rebellion. Not doing the things you're told to do. It becomes rebellion. And God says, That's the same thing as witchcraft. And stubbornness. You know, I just ain't going to do it. I'm going to find some other way. I just don't want to have to do that right now. So stubbornness... Is as iniquity and idolatry. Because when we get stubborn to the point to say, I'm just not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, we're putting ourselves above God. That's why it's idolatry. We think ourselves much better than God. And Saul passed the blame down in 24, last part, because I feared the people. This is why I did this. This is why I didn't kill Egy Yag. This is why I didn't stop all this, bringing all this loot back from there. Because, he said, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I didn't fear God and obey his voice. I feared the people. As human beings, we find ourselves sometimes in that position, don't we? We find ourselves fearing man and we don't do exactly what's right because we fear people. And not God, because we haven't looked far enough in advance to think, well, you know, God brought me here. Each one of us has a special cause. We're only here because God's got a better problem, a better thing in mind for us. And if we get stubborn and not want to change, and that's what it's about changing, obeying, listening, following directions as God gives to us. And we get to thinking it's really tough sometimes to walk that straight and narrow path. We think it's tough, so we don't walk it. We we find an easier path, and yet we can go back and hear what Christ had to say Himself. Uh, the way to eternal life is a straight narrow path, but the way to destruction is where you can stumble and fall and get up and run, and you know it's just easy. This is broad. There's all kinds of things to do out there. It's a whole lot easier to go contrary to God. So we look at another example of somebody who didn't see far enough in the future but found an excuse to blame God, and that's in Ruth. In Ruth 1, <coughs> we see where a <coughs> man, Elimelech, had a wife, Naomi, and two sons. And there were hard times there in Israel. And so he moved his family to Moab. And they lived there in Moab for a while and a died. And after ten years, Naomi's two sons died. And she was left with two daughter-in-laws and no grandchildren, no husband, no sons. And she took a short-sighted view of what happened. She decided she's going to go back to Israel where she came from. So it's only verse 19, so she and Ruth went back to Israel. Now, Ruth and Orpha both had the same opportunity, didn't they? But Orpha chose the wrong way. I think of... Uh, Matthew 25 is ten virgins. Virgins. We're not talking about those that were called and never got around to it. I'm talking about those that God called and selected and pointed out that this is the way to go. You're going to be brides of Christ. Half of them put their effort in the right direction. And half of them didn't. Half of them had to go into tribulation. Half of them had to buy gold tried in the fire. That's tribulation. So here, Orpha and Ruth had the opportunity, the same opportunity, just like each one of us. Same opportunity, same blessed family, or unblessed, however they want to look at it. And only one made the right choice. So in 19, we see Ruth and Naomi going back to Bethlehem, Judea. And it came to pass, when they were come into Bethlehem, that all the city was moved about them. And they said, Is this Naomi? Well, she had been over ten years since she left. it been fifteen years, I don't know. I don't know how long they were there before Elimelech died, but it was ten years after he died before they left. And she said to the people, Call me not Naomi. Call me Mara. This is why she didn't want to be called Naomi anymore. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She began to blame God for the circumstances that happened. Except God had something far greater in mind. He was looking at the birth of Christ... She was looking at the birth of David and she was looking at the death of her sons and her husband. So call me not Naomi. God has dealt with me bitterly. I went out full and God has brought me back home again empty. It's God's fault. What's really interesting is that Ruth was adopted in her family and called her daughter. Ruth was the grandmother of David. See, she didn't see that. And Naomi became then the great-grandmother of David. So we don't look always at what's down the road. We only look at what's here right now and show something happens to us. Why me? Why did God allow that to happen to me? Why did I get the short end of the stick. How often have we felt that? Because we think others get the good side, and some of us don't get the good side, we get the bad side. In Romans 10, verse 3, we see where Paul writes, "...for they being ignorant of God's righteousness..." You see, with Naomi... She didn't understand God's righteousness. Israel didn't understand God's righteousness. They were not looking for God's righteousness. Yeah, he gave them life. He gave them a nation. He protected them. Saul didn't get it. He was made king. We don't look at God's righteousness. So here Paul said, because they were ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness. How oh, often we done that. I'm all right. I'm, I'm a good guy in this position now. I'm great. God brought me here and blessed me. So they establish their own righteousness and have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. we are not willing to say, I did it. No, you did God. My wife did, my kids Adam's wife, Israel's people, uh, Samuel, you're the problem. We only can see in the future dimly. Even though for some time God has been teaching us and bringing us to that point of life, to see the future. But we still look through a clouded glass because we're not peering through the glass hard enough to see what's in the future. There was a man named Job. He's another example of what God is doing. and We know that Job was very rich, he had a lot of kids, he was well-known in the community, everybody liked Job. Job had it made. God had been protecting him. He knew it. Chapter 1, verse 6. I've got a couple of interesting points, or one interesting point or two, however you want to look at it. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before God, and Satan came with them. It was a commanded time for the angels, good and bad, to come. They had to come. We don't hear that they made an excuse. Not even Satan didn't make an excuse that I didn't come. He came because it was commanded to him. Like it is for us today. Passover, last day of Unleavened Bread, uh, Pentecost. Trumpets, atonement, Feast of Tabernacles, last great day, and the Sabbath. These are holy convocations, commanded assemblies. How often do we try to slip aside and not follow those commands? We find an excuse. Do we blame God? I'm tired. Do we blame God? It's too far away we blame God for whatever reason that I can't make services. And yet, Paul told us in Hebrews 10.25, forsake not your, the assembling of yourselves together in the, as the manner of some is, but exhort one another and so much more as the day approaches. We see the approaching of the end of this age. Do we exhort each other to be together, to learn or do we find an excuse to say, well, the sermons are boring. I don't like the sermonette person. Um, I'm not going to learn anyway. Uh, whatever it is, do we find an excuse? Are we just stubborn? Do we think we're righteous enough not to be there? God said about Job that he has high in integrity. He feared God. He loved God, and he stayed as hard as he could, and never went into evil because he feared God. There in Job, I uh, don't. Uh, it's verse twenty-one, whatever it is. Job said, "It's the end of chapter." Two, I think it is. Job says, Naked I came out of my mother's womb. Naked I'll return. And the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed in the name of the Lord. And Job never sinned. Do we look at it that way? Chapter 2. We see that they had to come again. Another time they came there. God allowed jo- uh, Satan to hurt job financially by stripping him down and making him totally poor that's why he said make it i came in and make it i'm going out god gives and god can take away so he's still saying he's justifying god's actions so we find in two they came to another commanded assembly only this time god brought it up you know it says do you see my servant job how good he is, you entice me to take him everything away from him, make him totally poor, and he never sinned against me. You can't see that. So. He said he never sinned. What was Satan's response to that? In verse 4, chapter 2, Satan answered the Eternal and said, Skin for skin. Isn't that interesting? You attack him physically, attack his body, take him down to the the lowest depths. I mean, really hurt him bad. Skin for skin. And all that a man has will he give for his life. Is that what we do in this country today? In this world? We're willing to bend every cent we have to keep us alive one more day. Even if we're sick, if we're put down, just like skin for skin, when we're put down, we'll spend every penny for one more day. And what benefit is that? Skin for skin. All a man has is good for his life. But put forth your hand and touch his bones and his flesh, and he will curse you through your face. Happens, doesn't it? In society today. But we who understand God's way of life, It should not be that way. We should understand that death for us is sleep to God, because he's going to bring us back. He's going to give us life again. This is only a temporary learning situation. We're in school learning how to love God. If we go through the book of Job, we can see where in chapter 3 we find... Job felt sorry for himself. 7, 9, 10, 19, 29, many other places we see where Job put the problem on God. His three friends talked with him. His three friends would say, you do this, this, and Job said, no, it's God's fault. I've been good, no, my righteousness is above God's. I'm very righteous. They could not convince him that he made the wrong choices. We go to 32. Job 32, verse 4. Here we see Elihu had waited until Job had spoken because his three friends in Job were older than him. And he felt that wisdom comes from the elderly people. But they were never able to see Job's problem. And so in verse 13 of 33, we see where Elihu says, Why do you strive against God? For he has given not account, or he does not give account, of any of his matters. You can't challenge or question God for the things he does. That's what Elihu pointed out. Job had up to this time questioned God on things that he did. Pointed at God's problem. Go back up to verse 8 of 33. Surely, and this is Elihu speaking, Surely you have spoken in my hearing. I was listening the whole time. Everything you said, Job, I've got that down. I can remember those things that you said. And I have heard the voice of your voice, or your words, saying, Okay, now I'm going to tell you what you said. You said, Job, I am clean and without transgression. Romans tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Christ said in in Matthew, I believe it is, that... There is none righteous. No, not one. But Job said, and who said it, said, I heard you say this, that I am clean without transgression. I am innocent. Do we find that same thing? I'm innocent with what I've done? Neither is there iniquity in me. Look, I'm, I'm righteous. I'm doing good. Behold, God... Finds occasion against me. Choke said, God looked out there and found an occasion to be against me. God has counted me for his enemy. You know, it's easy to find yourself that way. We make mistakes and consequences come about. And do we look out there and say, God has made me his enemy. But that's not God's thoughts. God says, righteous judgment, mercy, which is forgiveness when you repent, and faith. So God expects a lot out of us, and we don't always come through with everything he gives to us. Job said, and he pointed out, God has put my feet in the stocks. He makes all my paths. He marks all my paths. He knows where I go. He sees everything I do. Behold, in this, said Yehud, you are not just. I will answer you that God is greater than men. We try to find fault with God. And yet, We say that it's God's fault. God has done it to me. Has he done it to you? Is God the problem in our life? Is God the problem with the church? Or, as Revelation said in Revelation 3, you have said in the church, I am rich and increased with goods and I don't need any more. It's God's problem if He don't give me what I need. I'm rich and increased with good. This is what happened to the church. It wasn't Koch. It wasn't the ministry. It wasn't those who were leadership in the church. It was me. It was you that caused the problem. But we want to say it was God because he put Koch the there. He put the ministry there. He allowed all those things to happen. Yeah, He allowed them to happen. But it's not His problem. It wasn't God's problem that we thought we had it made. We, the church, the Worldwide Church of God, were going to go into a place of safety over in Petra. Of course, that always turned me off. I, I've seen a lot of Petra things, and I couldn't imagine me being over there looking at, pagan idols or Christ looking at us and him looking at pagan idols. So, you know, there's things that I couldn't imagine there. But but we said we were going to all jump on airplanes. We never gave it consideration if there was a hundred and, because we thought 150,000 144,000 people would go on airplanes. How many airplanes would that take? And where would they land these planes? <laughs> you know, <laughs> where would you land it out in a, Desert area in a small, small, small country, smaller than some of our small states in this country, in this nation. Right? You know, we didn't give that a lot of thought. But we thought that we were all going to go to a place of safety. And because we got complacent and we thought our righteousness was better than God's, He had enough of it. And yes, He allowed it. Did he send Satan and said, there's my church. Have you noticed them? Well, skin for skin, you know. You take it down to their dollar bills and you see how much they stay around. And what happened? Where is the church today? I had a fellow in Houston tell me years ago, back in the late 60s, early 70s, he said, you know... I've got, to, I've got to do my job, I've got to work these things, I've got to work on a Sabbath, I've got to let my kids play ball. But, you know, I know that when push comes to shove and it gets down to the bottom line, I don't know where the church is and I'll come back. That was in the late 60s and early 70s. Do you think he could find the church of God today? I doubt it. I doubt it. Because he don't know where to look. There was a lawyer who was tempting Christ. He said, Master, this is in Luke 10, verse 25, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We've asked that same question, haven't we? What do I have to do to be a part of the bride of Christ? And Emmanuel said, what's written in the law? How do you read it? So he's a lawyer. You know, They find all these new and all these little gadgets and they can add words and they can add so many words that you get lost in their writings. So what does the law say? And he answered rightly. He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and with and your neighbor as yourself. It's gonna be the same way with even with your neighbors. And Christ said to him, and he said, you have answered rightly. This do, and you shall live. That's what we have to do. That's what it's about. Learning to be at unity. Learning to love our Creator, not blame Him. Learning to love our neighbor, not blaming them. Following the law to the, to the point that God wants us. He said, the man answered Christ back and said, willingly to justify himself. And so this is why he answered. This is the word answering Christ. Because he would have justified himself, but I do. Who's my neighbor? <laughs> I want to justify my... i got to be careful here because this person looked at me wrong. This woman bought the same dress I have and wearing it at the same time. Or they made a cake better than me, or they can build buildings better than I can, or they are richer or poorer, or are smarter or dumber, or thinner or fatter, or whatever than me. So he wanted just what. Who's my neighbor? Who do I have to pick out? Who do I have to say this is my neighbor? I find it very hard, and very, very, very hard to not find fault. That's what God wants. He doesn't want me to find fault with you. He doesn't want you to find fault with me. You can go back later on and read James chapter thir- uh, 1, 13 through 27. Read that and put that in on here. Because it's also important. These things were inspired for us to understand, to read, to grow, and learn how not to be spotted in this world. Proverbs 28.13 says, He that covers a sin shall not prosper, but whosoever confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. It is a point of saying, I did it. Not you, Father. Your love is so outstanding. I think one of the aspects that we come short on is we know that God said David was a man after his own heart. But we also know David was a bloody man. We also know that David murdered one of his very close companions, one of the 30 men that were with him when he left Israel as Saul was chasing him down. He murdered him. He took his wife. And then in Psalm 51, verse 1 through 4, This is the attitude that we have to begin to develop. Not pointing the finger and blaming God, but here David said, Have mercy on me, O Eternal. According to your loving kindness, he recognized the kindness and the love that God had. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. David said, I am the guilty God. Forgive me. Wash me. I have thought about this many, many times in saying in prayer, Father, wash me. Make me whiter than snow. So David said, wash me, through your, uh, through from, my, wash me from mine iniquities and cleanse me from my sins. You know, I sin. David said. I need to be cleansed. I need to be forgiven. I need to not do that anymore. And he says, I am the guilty person. What David is saying. Cleanse me from my sins. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He recognized it was his fault. Sometimes it's difficult. We have a brother or sister, family member that we get sideways with. Do we take that approach to say, maybe I'm guilty. I know Matthew 18 says you take it to your brother. You go to your brother humbly and say, look, if I've offended you or I've done something wrong to you, help me to see my mistakes. Or we can go to a brother and say, you did this to me. Now let's straighten it out. <laughs> you know? We do that because we're human. We have that tendency to do those things. David said, I acknowledge my transgression. My sins are ever before me. Against you. Against you, God. And you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And I do and I say this so that you might be justified when you speak. And clear when you judge. We need to have this approach not to find fault, not to point the finger at a brother or sister or God. So easy to do that because, you know, we see each other and we can justify our reactions to each other and not think the fact that God sees us too and we forget that there is a God. And so we want to hide from God our mistakes. And we can go about finding fault with other people. That's not what God wants. We don't want, God does not want us to find fault with Him. But it's easy to find fault because we hide from Him. But what God wants us to do is for us to say, I am the guilty party. Forgive me for sinning against you, Father. So take the time. Love each other just like you love God. And if you love God, and you say, I love God with my whole heart and mind and soul, you better be loving your brother. Because there again in Matthew 25, Christ says, The way you treat each other is the way you will treat me.